According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in the book of Hebrews, not quite done with Hebrews 13, but getting close. The finish line is in sight as we run with endurance the race that's set before us. All right, we have spoken last week about our sacrifices in verses 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. The idea of praise and thanksgiving that comes as we confess the name of Jesus Christ. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And the blessing we have in the church age is to view our service as included within our priestly function. That our priestly function includes thanksgiving and praise. Our priestly function includes our confession of the name of Jesus Christ. And we name his name with every thought, word, and deed. We confess his name in, uh, in our priestly function. And then the doing good and the sharing, the fellowship sharing that we do, the good deeds, the, the practical things we do one for another in the body of Christ, they also become priestly sacrifices. It says, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so you think about it, you can offer it up as prayer. Uh, it's one thing, you know, I mean, so you stop by and you pick somebody up and you give them a ride to church or you take them home. Those, uh, those are priestly sacrifices. And you know, an unbeliever could do it. An unbeliever could be a, an Uber driver or give somebody a ride somewhere or go run an errand. But a believer can do it under the filling of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ and the will of God the Father and can make it a prayer sacrifice before it even begins, offering it up as a sweet-smelling savor before the Father's throne of grace. And so those are the issues we dealt with last week. We're going to move on today and take a look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. My favorite verse in the whole Bible right here is the, <laughs> I'm teasing. But the, uh, the, um, it is a function of the local assembly whereby God has placed leaders. And the leadership is there for a reason. And the leadership is accountable to Jesus Christ for the faithfulness in the shepherding duties that are expected in a local church. And so, yes, there is obedience that is uh, assigned. But that obedience is a persuasion, which we're going to see as well. That it's not blind obedience, it's not slavery to uh, do everything you're told to do. And the distinction between obey and submit is different. Both are right here though. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And so uh, this becomes a fruitful study as well. Let's get started with a word of prayer to make sure we're filled with the Spirit, to make sure we're relaxed in principles of obedience and submission, and uh, humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word and rejoicing in the blessings you've supplied. And your word is alive and powerful. Your word is, is so true, faithful and true. And Father, uh, we're dealing with issues of obedience and submission today in this passage, which uh, is, is a delight, Father, to consider. Uh, but the wisdom of this world struggles. And uh, in some ways, um, the culture that we live in and the, the world around us uh, some of that rubs off, and, and we have to be aware of that, Father, to recognize that we live in a culture that's very hostile and resistant 
to authority orientation in some ways and, and uh, gender roles in another in terms of uh, marriage and submission and so many principles. I pray, Father, as we keep these things clear that we would have our eyes open to what your word makes clear that uh, submission is not inferiority, that it is a glory and a delight, that our Savior was delighted to submit to your will. And because of that delight and that submission, he went to the cross and purchased our eternal life. And it's not demeaning, it's not insulting, he's not deficient. Father, it is a a joy. And I pray that that we can see these biblical definitions here today and be blessed by this study so that we can make the appropriate applications as called for. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so uh, we get to verse 17, and I'll advance our slideshow here. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For, For, here's the explanation, not because they earn it, not because they deserve it, for they keep watch over your souls. It is only benefits you to, uh, to function within God's design. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And they give an account to Jesus Christ, not to you. And here's the full application. We're going to go through line by line here the, the detail of this text. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. And the uh, marvelous benefit of obeying a passive imperative, uh, a third person imperative, whereby you let them do something. Letting somebody do something. What what an obedient command, what an easy command to obey. Letting somebody do something, but with joy and not with grief. We see there's two options there. And the choice of whether it's joyful or grievous, uh, that's your choice to make. Uh, as the shepherd will continue to shepherd regardless. If he shepherds with grief, then you lose your profit from that, uh, from that activity. We're going to break all this down for you here today. Let me get the Bible up so whereby we can read it here. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. It's a verse we've studied before. In fact, I colored part of this verse already. <laughs> those who will give an account, the accountability of the ministry and the uh, tremendous responsibility and expectations that are there for a man that's preparing to be a pastor, for the man that's in seminary and preparing to take on the responsibilities of a flock. But we start with obedience and submission and uh, they are different issues. Obedience and submission, uh, subjection are different things. They're not the same thing. I think sometimes a subjection passage gets uh, highlighted, for example, Romans 13, where we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities over us. And that's the primary text for, for Christians to, uh, to function within society, within the culture and the, the legal structure that they've been placed in. And so that's the laws of Texas, the laws of the United States of America, the authority that's over us. And we are commanded to be in subjection but we are never commanded to obey. And that slight difference is actually very significant in the places where it can be found, the places where obedience is is there but not subjection, where subjection is there but not obedience, and the passages that actually have both. This is one that has both. So within the application of a local church, of brothers and sisters in a congregation, in a flock, that they are commanded to obey and to be in subjection, both. And uh, we want to understand these as they come. The Bible does give applications uh, of both obedience and subjection towards God. 
towards church leaders, towards church members, one to another, husbands and parents. I know that went by too fast. I'm just giving them to you all at once. We're going to slow down and we're going to look at each one of them, all right? Because maladjustment to the chain of command is a problem. Uh, Rejecting God's design is a problem. Flipping things upside down is what started all this mess in the sense that Eve and her subjection to Adam uh, was violated when she listened to the serpent and partook. And then when she gave to her husband and he placed himself in subjection to her. And he took the fruit from her and ate what she told him to. And uh, in full awareness that doing so was disobedience to God. Adam's great test was he obeyed woman rather than God. And uh, this is what started humanity in the, the spiral that followed. All right. But we start with submission towards God. And that's going to be item number one. And uh, that is item number one, particularly when it comes in conflict with Caesar, when the state tells us to do something, secular authorities command us to do something, and we're placed with an either-or conundrum where we cannot obey both. If we cannot obey both, then we must obey God and disobey man while we remain in subjection. That becomes a big clue as well. So um, bringing them before the Sanhedrin, and there's an earlier episode in the chapter, but just sticking with this here for now, in verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. This is the apostles Peter and John. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. We told you to quit it. We told you to knock it off. Like if a court puts you under a restraining order or puts a gag order and says you're no longer permitted to talk about something. If you violate that court order, what do we call that? It's called contempt of court. And and that could be a whole different case all on its own. So we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So we see right away what Peter and John, what their attitude was towards the command to quit preaching Jesus. And let me tell you, that'll be my attitude as well if if the state tells me that I can no longer be a pastor, I can no longer teach the Word of God, or that if the Bible gets labeled as hate speech and, and certain portions are are uh, become problematic in, uh, in the legal system of, of our nation. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Now this is not a contradiction. Notice this, the verb here is obey. And the, the verb subjection is not even in this verse. And we recognize that they stay in subjection even while they disobey. We are commanded to render unto God the things that are God, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and ideally we do, we do both all the time. The problem comes in, because God is never going to command us to be in defiance, but sometimes Caesar will command us to be in defiance of God. And when, when the government tells you to disobey the word of God, you then have no option but to disobey man so that you can obey God. Because the government has put you in that either-or situation. Does this make sense? So government puts you in the either or. You can't obey both because by obeying government you're disobeying God. And so when you're under those kind of no-win scenarios, you know, where you have to obey one versus the other, this is one of those moments where I like to say when push comes to shove. And so then you have to decide what gets pushed and what gets shoved. 
And this is what we do. We obey God and we disobey man. But we stay in subjection because we're still commanded to be in subjection. We are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And so we have the pattern here. Uh, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you have put to death by hanging on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And this is a a marvelous sermon to be preaching to the Sanhedrin because they are Old Testament scholars, but they are a disobedience to the Christ. And, uh, and the issue is there. Same thing with Hebrews 12.9. Obedience to God. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now here's the verb for subjection. We have the verb for obedience. We have the verb for subjection. God is worthy of both. We need to obey God and we're always to be in subjection to God. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? By the way, this is the easiest point. (laughs) Obeying God, being subject to God, you can find dozens of scriptures. It's not hard to find an obedience verb or a subjection verb in either Hebrew or Greek and attach it to this point. What about obeying church leaders? Because that's what we're dealing with here. Maybe Hebrews is mistaken. (laughs) <laughs> maybe Hebrews is just, that's just a, a lonely verse all by itself in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Maybe uh, it doesn't really mean what it says. We can find some way around it. Um, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. But I'm sure that's not really what it means. There's got to be a fine print, right? Like who's my neighbor kind of thing. Or, you know, the Pharisees want to weasel out of something. Um, no, it, it, it says what it says and it means what it means. And it's not the only passage that says this either. And the reasons why are comparable in all these other places where it says so as well. When we realize the benefit that it accrues to your account when the shepherd is doing what he's designed to do. And so church leaders are expected uh, to be obeyed and to be in subjection. Philippians 2.12 is also an agreement here. Paul writing to the Philippians where he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the congregation at Philippi expecting to be obedient. And Paul may never come back ever again. He's in, he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know which one to root for. And yet he expects if he does live, then uh, it's more work to be done and he will hopefully be restored to the Philippian believers. He hopes to travel there. In the meantime, he's going to send Epaphras, he's going to send Timothy until he himself can be there personally. But obedience not only in his presence, but also in his absence. The verb for obedience. First Thessalonians 5 verses 12 and 13. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate. Now the verb there to appreciate is oida, is the verb to know. And here's where, again, we look at the vocabulary and say, now, I want to really obey this, but I want to obey this properly. I want to obey this accurately. 
Same thing with the obey in, in Hebrews 13. It's actually patho, be persuaded by. So obey your pastor, be persuaded by your pastor as he teaches the Word of God. Be persuaded by the Word of God and be in subjection. But here the appreciate is to know them, to know those, oida, those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction or give you admonishment. They put things on your mind. And so the details that we draw out of here include uh, not only the appreciation, which is oida knowledge, to know him and to know him completely by experience. That's what oida is. And then they diligently labor among you. It's not that they deserve it. It's not that they're special. Not that you don't love them because they're so lovable. But they're diligently laboring among you and have charge over you in the Lord. Say, well, I don't like that. Who made them charge over me? Jesus did. He's the head of the church. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He has assigned believers to the charge of his under shepherds. We're going to see more on that coming up. Have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. That is, they admonish you. They they place things on your mind. And that you esteem them very highly in the love that doesn't take into account the merit of its object in the agape love. Esteem them, value them. Have the, the, the uh, intellectual thinking estimation of high worth. Esteem them highly in the agape love that does not take into account the merit of the object. Remember, God so loved the world. The world wasn't lovely. But the capacity of God in His loving integrity, that's the in love here where you esteem them very highly. Because of their work, not because of their worth, not because they deserve it, not because of anything intrinsic to them, but because of their work. Because they are God's provision for the shepherding of your soul. Live in peace with one another. So we are in subjection. There's obedience and subjection. This is subjection. In um, To God, to other church members. How about that? The shepherd is not the only one. In fact, there is a mutual reciprocal subjection that takes place depending upon the ministry and depending upon the other considerations. So 1 Corinthians 16, 16. Again, I've got to shrink this down so you can see the verses there. All right. The lower I get on the slide, the less Bible coverage area that I have here. All right. This is the conclusion of 1 Corinthians. You might remember when we taught this book study. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. So here's a family ministry. We don't know a whole lot about him. He's described here. Look forward to meeting him someday. And his household, not just one guy, his whole household. You know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They have devoted themselves to ministry to the saints. And so we can think of this as a family business. Think of this as a family ministry. And they are ministering 
to the saints. Is that, does that take the shape of, of hospitality? Does it take the shape of, of helps? Does it take the shape of, of uh, giving? Is it the gift of giving? Is it, uh, what is it that they're doing in ministering to the saints? Well, if somebody's sick, the ministry takes one application. If somebody's traveling, the ministry takes a different kind of... You know, the, the, the ministry, if you're ministering to people, then the needs are going to be as, as different as the people are different. The, the circumstances are going to be a, a variety of things. There are varieties of, of ministries. And in ministering to the saints, you could have any number of things. You know? Uh, what a, you know, the these saints over here, they just had a baby. These saints over here just had a parent die. These saints over here just moved to, to Rome or whatever. The, the different needs are going on. These saints over here are, are undertaking a, a, uh, an evangelism tour of, of uh, Macedonia or you know, whatever the case may be. Ministering to the saints is a pretty generic way to describe it. And that's what this household was, was busy with. The whole household took it up. That was their, their mission field. Ministry to the saints. And so what does he say then? That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the works and the labors. Notice the, the verb for subjection, the hupotasso, the, 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 the expectation of subjection extends beyond the, uh, the leadership of the congregation. It extends beyond the pastor teacher. It extends beyond the, the teachers, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. This is still hard work. This is still spiritual ministry that's taking place. And these men in their ministry fields understand there is subjection to such men, to everyone who helps. So then you get the gift of helps that comes along and coordinates. You're going to be in subjection to these ministers and to their helpers. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Because it's their ministry. And if you want to come along and help, if you want to come along and participate, you're going to be in subjection to them and their ministry. Anyway, there's a principle there because it applies to more than just the pastor. In fact, it applies to everybody. In fact, it gets universal in Ephesians 5.21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So this applies to everyone for everyone. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is where it says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's all of us, towards all of us. We have a mutual, reflective, reciprocal subjection one to another. And so while there are specific commands to be in subjection and obey your spiritual leaders, it doesn't tell you to obey everybody, but it does tell you that we are in subjection one to another. And so I have a lot of issues where I'm in subjection. If it's a, if it's a, a facet of ministry around here uh, connected to the, to the hospitality ministry, for example, I'm in subjection to Lillian. I'm in subjection to our hospitality deaconess because that is her ministry, her duty before the Lord. 
I'm in subjection to the nursery deacon. I'm in subjection to the property deacon. I'm in subjection to, uh, to the, the treasure. I'm in subjection to, see, for every field where these things, where, where these believers are serving the Lord in these gifts, ministries, and effects, if they're not my ministry, what am I doing? I'm supporting their ministry. And in, to support their ministry, I'm in subjection to what they're doing. So how can I help? What can I do? How can I pray for you? We'll start with that. And then if I'm going to come alongside, I'm going to come alongside in a coordinating way, in a subjective way. I'm not going to just barge on in there and say, well, I'm the pastor. You're going to do what I say. And here's how we're going to do this. And, you know, (laughs) the next 20 straight potlucks are all going to be pluckers no matter what. (laughs) Okay. So we, we see how this works. All right. To be in subjection one to another. Now, notice that closes that paragraph. That closes that paragraph whereby we have the church operating as a church and speaking to one another and singing and giving thanks and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Then it transitions to a marriage context where it's not bidirectional where it is wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. All right. So we have biblical examples for subjection. Wives be subject to your own husbands. That's Ephesians 5, 22 and 24. Stated twice. Now some people try to twist it because they try to go back to verse 21 and they try to force it out of its context and put it into the marriage context that follows. Destructive. Not only does it damage Ephesians, but then it also ignores Colossians, where in Colossians it just sits there by itself and you don't have the the one another subjection that Ephesians 5 has. Colossians just flat out says, wives be in subjection to your your husbands. Likewise, Titus 2.5. Do we need to look at all these or can you trust me? This is what it says. Yeah, wives don't want to see this. All right. So 5.22 and 24, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. See, that's why it can't be bidirectional. It's not a two-headed monster. Husband is the head, as Christ is head of the church. If we try to turn the church into a second head, then we have Christ as the head, the church as the second head, you end up with this goofy two-headed thing. All right. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So that's subjection. Colossians 3.18 Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. That's the sacrificial, unconditional integrity love that, that Christ had when he went to the cross. Children, be obedient to your parents. We'll get to that in a moment. Titus 2.5 This is where the older women can encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Plenty of clear teaching on that. Obviously, parents are... are, The scripture calls for children to obey their parents. It's the first commandment with a promise. Ephesians 6.1 
Notice the wives aren't commanded to obey their husbands. They're commanded to be in subjection to their husbands. But children are commanded to obey their parents. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Colossians 3.20 Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord, and fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. We also have subjection in the master-slave relationship. This is one that's getting pretty touchy these days. Since they have to rename things, anything with master in the title is now under review to get renamed. Your master's degree is going to have some other kind of title here shortly. And um, we no longer have, uh, there's other things that are no longer have. Realtors will never show you the master bedroom or the master bathroom. You just have the primary bedroom, the primary bathroom. Okay? Because we're hypersensitive and touchy about the word master. Well, we've got masters and slaves in Bible times, and masters and slaves are uh, recorded in the Word of God, and there are commands for both. And um, slaves are commanded to be in subjection and to obey. Ephesians 6, 5. And we don't have slavery anymore, but we do have uh, employment. <laughs> and your boss probably acts like a slave master, depending on where you work, and what your boss is like. So we can draw a, uh, an analogous application, secondary application, we say. But slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And if you think about it, the New Testament was written, and it wasn't for 1,800 years until uh, England and the United States of America abolished slavery in our, in our respective cultures. And here's the expectation of obedience. Colossians 3.22 Slaves in all things obey those who your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. In other words, not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. And, and with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you're going to do your work as unto the Lord. Even if you have the, the biggest, you know, horrible boss, that movie, uh, Horrible Bosses, okay? Which I never saw. I saw the commercials for it. Uh, Jason Bateman's in it, so I got my attention. But uh, that movie, Horrible Bosses, I, I can just imagine. I've had some of them, Okay? But to do your work as unto the Lord, as if that was Jesus Christ himself asking you to do all these horrible things that, uh, that really make the work day terrible. 1 Timothy 6.1 All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You have a mission field as a slave. God in, in his sovereignty placing people where he wants them, when he wants them there. And uh, many examples in church history where um, people came to faith because they had believing slaves. So that our doctrine will not be spoken against. They should be the, the best workers and don't take advantage those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren but must serve them all the more. In other words, don't think that you're going to skate or get over or have an easy time of it because you go to the same church. 
Just because they're a Christian, don't expect uh, that, uh, that uh, you can slack off in your, in your duties. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. So that's uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2, Titus 2, 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You know, the Christians on your shift should be the hardest workers on your shift. So that the, uh, the boss sees it and goes, wow, I know who the hardest workers on my shift are. It's those believers that are serving the Lord. And it becomes a testimony. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Again, it says servants. It's the same doulos, the, the bond slaves. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Undeserved suffering is rewardable. In fact, it's greatly rewardable because undeserved suffering is imitation of Christ. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You know, when you're getting the divine discipline, the deserved suffering, when you're getting the, the, the spanking you deserve because you committed the, the, the sin or the crime or the, you know, disobeyed your parents, and, and so you're, you're getting the, the parental discipline applied to you when the Board of Education is applied to the seat of learning. <laughs> Don't act like you're some Job martyr for the, for the cause and it's an undeserved suffering kind of thing. No, you're, you're getting the divine discipline. What credit is there when you uh, endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Because it's that undeserved suffering that's imitation of Christ. He didn't deserve the cross, but he went to the cross. Thank God that he did. Government. Oh, here's a toughie. Well, just as long as I voted for it, I'll, I'll obey. Is that what it says? First of all, it doesn't say obey. It does say be in subjection to government. Tell you what, here's what I'm going to do. Let me move it up here. I'll get more screen area up here. How about that? Is that better? I like it. All right. Every person. Again, I want to be like the Pharisee. Who's my neighbor? I want to try to find the way out. But it says every person. So that kind of includes me. Wait, there's a footnote. Soul. Okay, I have a soul. All right. Every soul is to be in subjection. Now, right away, just by using the word soul, it's taking, it's, it's a political passage, but it's taking it far beyond the political. By virtue of just using, starting off with the word every soul. Every soul is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. It doesn't say the good ones. It doesn't say the bad ones. It says the governing ones. The only adjective to authorities is governing if they are governing, if they are in power, it's because God put them there. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. The ones that are there are the ones God put there. 
And uh, just in case you think, well, this excludes the bad ones, it doesn't. That's not what it says. This was written when Nero was the Caesar. The Caesar who liked to coat Christians with wax and use them as human candles and sticking them in his yard. All right. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Resisting the governmental authority is resisting God who put that government in authority. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. Now, you might have a yeah, but, what about, okay? And we all have the yeah, buts and the what abouts. We take this passage out of its context when we inject foreign things into it. So let's just keep with what this passage is saying. We have other passages of Scripture whereby if we have unjust government, we have wicked kings and and so forth. But let's just stick with this passage here. It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Government is who's been entrusted with the judicial function. Not marriage, not family, not personal volition. We're not a law unto ourselves, just inflicting our own sword on everybody. And certainly not marriage, not, uh, it's, it's not Christian law. Muslim law allows the, the husband to, to beat his wife. But uh, our parents killing children, that's not allowed either. Okay. It's the government that has the sword. It does not bear the sword for nothing, but is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. Because of this, you pay taxes. Rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We are in subjection to the government that's over us. Now, if we have a wicked government over us, we can pray that God can change those circumstances. He's free to do so. But in the meantime, we have the government he's given us and we submit because God's got purposes for that. We can learn the lessons we can learn under unjust government in ways that maybe we don't learn under righteous government. Different things there. But we stay in subjection. Think about Daniel. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They disobeyed, but they stayed in subjection and went to the fiery furnace. Daniel disobeyed, but he remains in subjection. Gets thrown in the lion's den. You see, while we stay in subjection, that means we accept whatever the consequences are of our disobedience because we're obeying God rather than man. Again, taking us back to Acts chapter 5. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And so we're not undermining their authority. We're praying for them, praying for kings and rulers and all that are in authority. And we are in subjection. If Paul can write this while Nero is the Caesar, then... uh, We understand it's comprehensive that uh, we can't envision this not being applicable where we can choose to take upon ourselves an exception to the rule when the scripture is very explicit. 
1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him. So now we realize there might be layers. There could be, um, there could be a spectrum of authority. Kings and governors. That means we could have a national, state, local level. So there's going to be executive, there's going to be judicial. We're subject to all the authorities over us. For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's a testimony. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. So we're to be in subjection to government. And thank God we have government. Understand what happens without government. What is the consequence of anarchy? Are you a fan of the anarchists? Do you like anarchy when you see it in the news? I don't. <laughs> anarchy. When I was in high school, I had a friend with an anarchy t-shirt. and He, he uh, said, anarchy, there's no government like no government. <laughs> anyway, I hadn't thought about him for a while. He also had nuclear unborn gay whales for Jesus. He liked that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, some people like to just spark discussion or fights. And when it comes back to the spiritual leadership, let's tie this together. When it comes to the uh, church leaders, Pastors are accountable to God for the sleepless watch they maintain on behalf of the souls allotted to their charge. Because specifically we're in Hebrews 13, 17 and the application is not government, it's not husbands, it's not any of the other things. It's church leadership. Pastors are accountable to God for the sleepless watch they maintain on behalf of the souls allotted to their charge. When it says they keep watch over your souls, Literally, they stay awake. They stay awake. You ever have sleepless nights, staying awake, fretting over a, a child or a grandchild or, or a loved one, and you're losing sleep over uh, certain... Well, that's what pastors are designed to do. It's a sleepless watch. In fact, the imperatives to, uh, to be on the alert are don't go to sleep. <laughs> and the... Uh, the uh, some of the the worst. Uh, I was an MP in the army, and the oh, the horrible, horrible consequences for being asleep on duty. Oh my goodness! If you're on guard duty and twenty four hour guard duty, you're all through the night. You're not sleeping. Don't get caught asleep on duty. That's almost as bad as being drunk on duty. I mean, that's just that's bad news for an MP to be sleeping on duty. So it's a sleepless watch on behalf of the souls allotted to their charge. Notice, over your souls as those who will give an account. They are accountable. Now who, get, who holds them accountable? Who gave them those souls? Who has entrusted those souls? We understand as Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. And we see that when we take Hebrews 13, 17 and we combine it with 1 Thessalonians 5 and we combine it with 1 Peter 4. Because they're all effectively saying the same thing just in, in uh, different ways. Bring this back down again. 
There we go. All right. So Hebrews 13, 17, that's our text today. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They are accountable. Meaning they have to turn it in. They have to answer for any damage that's done. <laughs> you know, turning in your equipment at the end of your shift or turning in your... Uh, yeah, I, mean, I suppose you could claim fair wear and tear on certain things <laughs> that the uh, the inventory officer is not expecting to get back in, in quite as good a shape as when it was issued. But generally speaking, most of the things, the equipment you're entrusted with, you're supposed to take care of it and return it in a, in a manner, uh, you know, having been well kept. And if you uh, demonstrate that you neglected your duty, then uh, you pay the consequences. All right, because you're accountable to whom much is given shall much be required to whom is entrusted they will they will ask all the more that's uh, Luke 12:48 uh first Thessalonians 5 we were just looking at these in a different context 12 and 13 notice the uh, have charge over you that's the term have charge over you that's a charge that's not uh that's not a, a tyranny that's a charge that is, someone has placed a charge. That's like if in the language of an ordination or the language of, a, of, of investing somebody with a duty. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. You put somebody under a charge. That means you're accountable for the one that you're serving, the one that has placed you under that charge. That, that phrase, have charge over you, speaks of the accountability the sleepless watch they maintain on behalf of the souls allotted to their charge. Maybe the most blunt is 1 Peter 5. And it says 4, I'm suspicious, it's really verse 3. Yeah, 3 and 4 there. When you read 1 Peter 5, this is not the first pope, okay? Catholics will tell you Peter was the first pope, but here's Peter writing as an elder to his fellow elders... He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Notice that? Whose flock is it? It's God's flock. But you're commanded to shepherd it. And it's because it's the flock of God among you. You don't have to shepherd the whole body of Christ all around the planet but just the flock of God among you, the ones that he's given you, the ones in your proximity, the ones under your shepherding care. And so the ones down the road in Bastrop, I don't have to worry about those. Pastor Cliff has those. The ones down in Corpus Christi, I'm not, I'm not shepherding those guys. Pastor Dan's shepherding those guys. That's the flock of God among them. But the flock of God among me is you guys. So shepherd, the flock of God among you. Then it says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Remember, God loves the cheerful giver. We, we can't be serving in, in grudgingly or under compulsion, but as each man is purposed in his own heart, God loves the cheerful giver. It's got to be voluntary according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Jesus warned about this, right? When he talked about the good shepherd versus the hireling. The pastor that's just in it for the money, he's going to bail when the, when the better paying gig comes along. Or he's going to drop it like a hot potato if, uh, if the, 
the gravy train dries up or something like that. He'll decide, hey, it's not worth it. But the true shepherd is going to be faithful in season and out of season. And uh, he's going to shepherd not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And then he says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This also speaks to the accountability. Because the shepherd didn't allot you to himself, and the sheep didn't allot themselves to the shepherd. Those allotted to your charge. That's a passive voice. Those allotted done got allotted. They didn't do the allotting. It's the good, the great, and the chief shepherd that assigns sheep where he wants them. He places them where they need to be, where their gifts and ministries and effects uh, fit with the remainder of the body of Christ in that location. And this is why when we have visitors, we welcome them and we're delighted, but we're praying with them that they will find where God has allotted them, where they can hear the voice of their shepherd. And sometimes it's a little startling when, you know, I I hint at the fact that maybe it's not going to be here. It's not that we're chasing people away, but we want you to be where Jesus puts you. And we want it to be clear that you hear the voice of your shepherd, that you know, wow, I have been allotted to this charge. This is where I belong. This is where my soul is fed. And so um, notice that shepherding is not um, tyranny. You're not lording it over. This is where you take the Lord Jesus Christ and you make a verb out of it. The Lord is a noun, but you verb it. And you can't lord it because you're not the Lord. But proving to be examples to the flock. This is the servant leadership that lives the Word of God by example. And you'll notice when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory because he's the one that the under-shepherds are accountable for. Every shepherd works for the chief shepherd, works for Jesus Christ. And there's a reward that's assigned. The unfading crown of glory. Joy or grief... Now this is your option. Joy or grief is the church member's option. In season or out of season is the pastor's mandate. Joy or grief. Like the classic, uh, you know, in all the movies and whatever. We we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. You know. And uh, whatever. Depending on the movie, it's real serious or it's comedy, but we're familiar with the concept. How do you want to do it? You want to do it the easy way or the hard way? Because it's going to happen either way. Which way do you want to do it? With joy or with grief? It's going to happen either way. When it says be subject to your elders, uh, when it says uh, to appreciate those who diligently labor among you, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Because they're going to do it anyway. But if you make them do it with grief... This would be unprofitable for you. If you make them do it with joy, then it's profitable. You see the difference? Do I need to put it back up there again? We've seen it twice already. Um, That joy or grief. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this, that is doing it with grief, if they do it with grief, it is not profitable for you you lose your reward. But if they do it with joy, you get your reward. It's profitable. 
we're Americans, right? Don't we like profit? <laughs> capitalism? Oh no, that's right. Capitalism is going away. We don't like profit. Profit's a bad thing. No, okay. I'm, I'm tongue in cheek. I'm joking. We get this, okay? Profit is not a bad thing. God has designed us to be productive, to produce, to have an abundance, to then reinvest that in, uh, abundance. We want to be profitable. All is lawful, but not all is profitable. All is lawful, but not all edifies. That's the key. We want to be profitable in our Christian walk. And so some of the easiest rewards you can get are the judgment seat of Christ. Some of the easiest rewards you can get. Let me say this again. For any Christian in the church age, this is, this is easy pickings. <laughs> you know, this is like the Cub Scout looking up ahead and looking at uh, you know, the brand new Boy Scout trying to figure out which 21 merit badges he wants to make for Eagle. And then he starts picking on the low-hanging fruit and saying, you know what? Basket weaving is the easiest merit badge in the entire Boy Scout book. You can do the basket, basketry merit badge in 30 minutes. And, and that's if you've got clumsy fingers like me. Probably a skilled person can do the basketry merit badge in 15 minutes. Anyway, so you, you say, well, what's the easiest this is the easiest. You could call it the um, made my pastor's ministry a joy prize. Let them do this with joy because that's profitable for you. You get rewarded when your pastor's pastoring, when your shepherd's shepherding is a joy. It's profitable for you. But if your shepherd's shepherding is a grief, the phone rings, caller ID tells you who it is. See, I think, <laughs> this is terrible. The Apostle Paul did not have to answer the phone with, with caller ID. I'll tell you that right now. Jesus never had to answer the phone with caller ID. And the phone rings and you're like, ah. Okay. And then you have an extra prayer thinking, how much more prayer can I get before it goes to voicemail? And then you pray, and you pray, and you hit the button. All right. I'm teasing. A little bit. All right. No, I, honestly, though, here's the truth. I have been out of fellowship when the phone rings and had to first John one night as quick as I can because you only get that third ring or so, fourth ring maybe before, the, before you got to answer it. And thankfully I have that delay in there, so... Because otherwise, phone calls go straight to my hearing aids. No matter where the phone is, the phone could be in my pocket or on the desk or wherever. If it's, if it's in Bluetooth connectivity and, and the phone call comes in, then I've got voices in my head that just start talking to me. So we have the Make Your Shepherds Shepherding a Joy Prize. It's a crown, it's a, it's a reward, and it's available and this is the church member's option. Which way are we going to do this? The easy way or the hard way? For the uh, pastor, the mandate is in season or out of season, 2 Timothy 4.2. See, here's a charge. This is an ordination message that we adapt quite frequently. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and by His kingdom. Preach the word. You're not there for the entertainment, the fun and games. Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. See, trees have seasons, pastors don't. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For 21st century American Christianity will come along. That's what it says in verse 3. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And goodness, our, our culture is full of these ear-tickling megachurches in different places. Enduring sound doctrine, that's a remnant. That's a remnant. That's not the majority of Christendom today. You'll see that. And it, it didn't just start in the 21st century either. This has been a long slide. So, joy or grief, that's your option. In season or out of season, that's my option. That's my mandate. In season or out of season. Profitable versus unprofitable. Clearly defined. The Bible has a lot to say about profit and what's profitable. And usually in almost every passage where you find, and I probably went overboard. Say yes, pastor, you went overboard. Um, That's a lot of verses (laughs) centering on profitability. And generally every single one preaches itself like this one here in Hebrews 13, 17. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. That, that preaches itself. That either or of, of joy or grief shows you what's profitable and unprofitable. All of these passages show you what's profitable or unprofitable. And they're not, they're not trick verses. They're, they're pretty straightforward and, and, and easy to understand. So in our two minutes remaining... Oh, no, this is not communion. I got extra time. We've got uh, seven minutes remaining. Or I can just keep going. An extra 15 minutes, an extra hour. We'll find out if you're in subjection or not. (laughs) No, then I would violate let all things be done properly in an orderly manner. And somebody here would quote me on that. Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So here's a profit application, very clearly defined, that uh, when it comes to earthly wealth versus your soul, there's no comparison. The shepherd keeps watch over your soul as those who will give an account. So understand what spectrum we're dealing with, with shepherding. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing the words that I've spoken to are spirit and life. So if you've got physical fitness and you've got spiritual fitness, which one's really profitable? We see that again in 1 Timothy 4.8. 1 Corinthians 6.12. I'm going to go way too fast here today, but that's okay because you can uh, go back and rewind it, slow it down, pause it. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If you're trying to claim that you have liberty to do something, but it really enslaves you, that's not liberty. That's not your freedom. That's, that's slavery. Don't confuse the two. If it's not profitable, then you don't want to be doing it. 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. 
Think about it. If it's not rewardable, then it's a non-issue. You're neither the better if you do nor the worse if you don't. It's not judged at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not rewardable or unrewardable. It's a non-issue. Eat what you want. Drink what you want. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 33. All things are lawful, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Down to verse 33 it says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Several of these passages, we've gone through them before. (coughs) Hopefully this is a good review for you. Look at how many of these in 1 Corinthians. 13.3. I keep mistyping Corinthians. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. There are so many religious people that go to all these extremes and they're not profiting. They're, they're functioning outside of God's love procedures. 1 Corinthians 14.6 Yeah, the idea of not profiting in uh, speaking in tongues. What will I profit you unless I speak to you by way of revelation? Now we don't have tongues anymore today, but that was the issue back then. 1 Corinthians 15.32 If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? You know, when he thinks back to everything he suffered in the, in the cause of Christ, including being thrown to the lions, was he doing that for earthly motives, human motives? If so, he has no reward waiting him at the judgment seat of Christ. But if from divine viewpoint, if in the filling of the Holy Spirit and the will of God, for the glory of Jesus Christ, he gets thrown to the lions, well then praise God. Anyway, more there. I'm I'm out of time. We'll have to shut down here. But um, profitable versus unprofitable. The Bible is very clear and very obvious. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for the blessings we have to study. Thank you for the applications that become so readily apparent when we see that the text says what it says, it means what it means, and we adjust ourselves to your design or we live in defiance and face the consequences. Father, thank you for your mercy, love, and grace for opening our eyes, opening our ears, and softening our hearts. We thank and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will close with our closing hymn. Our final